Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. 100 years ago, in April 1923, the first customs posts were set up along the Irish border. At the other end of the country, in County Kerry, a year and nine months later, a man was born who was destined to spend the greater part of his life living and working along that frontier. My father joined the customs in 1949, just one day after leaving the Irish Army. After training in Dublin Castle, he was deployed to the Donegal-Tyrone border. I got to see exactly where, one day in the summer of 2004, when he asked me to take him for a spin in the car, little realising, as we left County Monaghan, that our first stop would be nearly two hours and 60 miles later in Donegal when he instructed me to pull in to the side of a narrow country road. I watched as he surveyed the landscape, took a short stroll, then stopped decisively in the middle of the road, declaring, This is it. It? What was it? We were in the middle of a road, in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by bogland. He explained we were now standing on the exact spot where, on the 3rd of January, 1950, he entered his first customs post. This accommodation in the townland of Mean Bog was every bit as welcoming as the name suggests, being just a tin hut with a corrugated roof and no electricity. It did have a range for burning turf, an oil lamp and little else. By way of compensation, it afforded uninterrupted views of the Atlantic weather fronts rolling in over the Blue Stack Mountains. One day, he was caught taking shelter in the hut from a bit of drizzle, as he described it, when a senior officer paid a surprise visit. I know, admonished the unimpressed superior, that you are not supposed to go out in the rain, but that doesn't mean every time you see a cloud over Barnesmore Gap that you have to stay in. He laughed at the memory, and we resumed our trip to his next posting, the village of Carrigan's on the Donegal Derry border. Carrigan's railway station was on the Derry to Straban line, and his post here was a more comfortable affair, an office on the station platform. The village in the fertile Lagan Valley of East Donegal, has its origins in the Ulster plantation of the early 1600s, and I wish I'd asked him if migrating from the Kingdom of Kerry in the 50s, swapping the river field for the foil, was as alienating an experience for him as it was for the thousands of Scottish settlers who crossed the Straits of Moyle 300 or so years earlier. In any event... My parents, now with a young family, lived here for 11 years until the demise of the railways in the 60s, when my father was transferred to Clonus on the Monaghan-Fermanagh border, where he served until his retirement many years later. In 2017, shortly before he died, smart technology and frictionless borders were, as now, hot topics. And when I remarked, that a black bicycle was the only technology available to him when he started. He asked if I remembered running after it every day when he pedalled off to work. Boys, he said, 
but you were the stubborn little so-and-so. You'd chase after me, and then you'd sit in the middle of the road bawling until I had to come back for you. Yes, I said. I had a recollection, but it was a vague one. But random cues can trigger dormant memories. Centenary commemorations, for example, or even news items on the restoration of disused rail lines. I think it was the possibility that trains could once again run through Carrigans that reawakened that vague memory and conjured an image of a sun-baked rural Donegal road in high summer sometime in the late 1950s. A young boy gives up chasing after a uniformed man cycling off into the distance. He cries in temper and in frustration throws himself down onto the middle of the road. His sobs subside as he watches the distant figure coalesce with a shimmering heat haze hovering over the hot asphalt and disappear. Whisperings of warm air dry the tears on his cheeks and the telegraph wires resume their summonant song. The boy waits and pushes a finger into pliable black blisters of tar, savouring the sensation as they yield under pressure. Then, at the faint crank of pedals, he jumps up as a figure emerges through a liminal veil of shimmering air, pedalling ever faster towards him. He cries out in joy as his father hoists him onto the bar of the bicycle and safely enfolded in two strong arms, they are in motion. The earthy aroma of hot bitumen yields to the sweet scent of paternal sweat patching through the starched white uniform shirt with its stiff studded collar. Trees and hedges blur, tires hum. Father and son are transported once again towards the border station. Oh, the summer time is coming and the trees are sweetly blowing and the wild mountain time grows around the blooming heather will you go lassie go and we'll all go When I arrived in Dublin a year and a half ago from the United States, I thought I'd never sleep again. It wasn't just that I was used to living in the relative quiet of the Colorado Rocky Mountains. I was also accustomed to the sound-dampening miracle of double-glazed windows. I'd never had much occasion to think about windows before, but I thought about them a lot after moving into my new second-floor flat at the edge of Temple Bar. I mean, a lot. The windows in my new Dublin flat were big and lovely and old. They were also single-paned. They looked no thicker than a fingernail, and they kept out just about as much noise. In Colorado, the night's silence had been punctuated by seasonal Chinook winds and a coyote's occasional mournful howl. In Dublin, I found myself with a front-row auditory seat to the revving of motorcycle engines, late-night brawls, and the urgent honking of cars. 
Sirens trailed ambulances up Dame Street. Along Lord Edward Street, the Hard Rock Hotel poured out a hefty dose of weekend acoustic rock. Strains of trad music, curses, whistles, a stomach heaving, unburdening its contents onto the pavement. I heard it all through those delicate panes of glass. I had expected noise when I moved to Dublin. I just hadn't expected to hear it quite so clearly. My first weeks passed. I bought earplugs and noise-canceling headphones. They weren't enough to silence the chatter of passing hen parties or someone's off-key rendition of semi-sonic song closing time. At night, I lay praying for sleep. By day, I swam zombie-like through the hours. I was in college, a student in Trinity's master's program for creative writing. I sat through my classes in a daze, digging deep for the dregs of energy needed to complete my work. Sometimes I tried a new remedy, melatonin, magnesium powder, valerian root. None subdued the city's noises enough for sleep to come. The holiday break arrived and many of my classmates went home. With my immigration status still in flux, I remained in Ireland. My flat was bitterly cold, my breath forming lacy puffs. The sun was in short supply, and each day felt like a door some shy, sky-bound deity cracked open late in the morning before quickly pulling it shut. I read poetry and worked on a new piece of fiction for one of my classes. As I wrote, I listened to Christmas music playing outside, the clipped rhythm of horses' hooves on asphalt. Someone tuned a saxophone. Someone else shouted for, but could not find, it seemed, a girl named Angie. Up the block, the bells of Christchurch Cathedral clambered over one another as they climbed the pewter sky. Perhaps it was December's extra helping of darkness, but I started sleeping just a little bit better. Then it was February and wet, then March and still wet. Spring arrived in a profusion of daffodils. My classes ended, and all that remained was the final assignment I would have to complete over the summer months. Inside my flat, it was too hot to breathe. I spent most days writing on my laptop in St. Stephen's Green. Returning home in the evenings, I made dinner and listened to tourists passing by as they headed for the pubs in Temple Bar. I heard familiar American accents, German, the wave-like rolling of the Spanish and Italian letter R. All summer long I heard them, at all hours. Here and there I slept. Occasionally I slept deeply enough to dream. In August I turned in my assignment and completed the course. Fast forward six months and I am still in the same flat, but no longer in college. I do not study in Ireland. I live here. Dublin has become home. I still don't sleep like a rock and I don't sleep like the dead, but I sleep well enough. The sounds I once found jarring have softened. They come and go from my awareness like threads in a shifting tapestry of noise. They're not all bad. I mean, sometimes they are. Sometimes it's the tuneless choral refrain of a drunken stag party. But other times it's a heart-wrenching violin or a woman belting out the high parts of Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You in a voice better than most. Once it was electronic dance music pumped from an old-school boombox propped on the steps of City Hall. 
I wasn't sleeping anyway, so I got up to look. Through my darkened window, I saw bicycles parked askew. People congregated nearby, swaying loosely to the music. I felt a kinship as I watched them, a zombie peering out at other zombies, all of us steeped in shadows, our edges blurred in the gray of 3 a.m. You've been disturbed from your sleep You've been laid down on the floor You've been looking around for your family Now your body's tired and sore Well, there's resistance on the water And there's an answer on the street And if you take the time to listen Today, Sunday, April 23rd, is William Shakespeare's birthday. Holy Trinity Stratford records his baptism on April 26th, 1564, indicating that he was born three or four days earlier. Church records also show that in 1582, aged 18, he married 26-year-old Anne Hathaway, who bore him a daughter, Susanna, six months later, followed in 1585 by twins Judas and Hamnet. But sadly, this little boy died, aged only 11, in 1596, and that Shakespeare was buried on his own birthday in 1616. How did this son of a glovemaker, born in a small country town, become the most quoted, most translated, most performed, best known playwright in English literature? Sometime in his early 20s, Shakespeare left home and family. We lose sight of him until his name appears in London in 1592 as a playwright. His whereabouts and the life he led during those lost years remains a mystery. Might he have made the month-long voyage to take him to the spectacular glories of 16th century Italian cities? The question must be asked, because he set so many of his plays in Italy, in Rome, Genoa, Verona, Padua, and, of course, glamorous, fashionable, romantic, cosmopolitan, multicultural Venice, whose wealthiest citizens lived luxurious lives in fabulous palaces. Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice may be based on Neil Pecorene, an Italian story which had many elements of his play. A beautiful heiress, a bid to win her in marriage, a Jewish moneylender, a merchant who defaults on the repayment of a loan with a pound of flesh as the forfeit, and a courtroom drama with a twist engineered by a smart woman disguised as a lawyer. If he did use this story, he must have read it in Italian, because it didn't exist in translation until 1632. Shakespeare's knowledge of Venice was remarkable. He knew that trade was done on the Rialto Bridge, that Venice was famous for banking and international commerce that gondolas floated on its canals, that Venetians celebrated carnival with masked parties, music and flaming torches lighting up its streets, that it imported silks, spices and luxury goods that made merchants like Antonio fabulously wealthy, that it traded with Tripoli, the Caribbean and far-off places that sounded exotic to his London audience, that it had a Jewish quarter, and that its legal contracts were binding. 
The Merchant of Venice tells a story about how a society treats its outsiders. Shylock, the ultimate outsider, a Jew in a city of Christians, is spat upon, despised and laughed at, even in his hour of greatest devastation when his daughter elopes with a Christian. This 430-year-old play, still studied today by tens of thousands of Irish secondary school students, poses a challenge to us in our age of global migration, raising uncomfortable questions about our sense of decency and justice and fair play for everyone. The merchant's golden circle of rich, elegant people look after their friends, lend one another money, celebrate each other's happiness. They bend the rules for their own. Helping a gold digger to disguise his girlfriend who steals money and jewellery from her father for their elopement. One of them is even willing to die for a friend. But they treat outsiders with contempt, even visiting royalty such as the eloquent, formidable Prince of Morocco. In the play's courtroom climax, we see an outsider, Shylock, whose feelings of oppression have become so unbearable that he is willing to watch his persecutor bleed to death. For a brief moment, Shylock thinks he has the power, holds all the cards. But, in a brutal counterattack, Portia, having spoken a heart-stopping speech about mercy, mercilessly crushes him with the brute force of special laws against minorities. There were hundreds of plays on stage in Shakespeare's London. A handful are still performed, the merchant being one of them. Why? Because I think it asks questions about how we behave, how humane we really are, and how we treat people who are different. Who calls the shots in any group of people? Who has the power? And how do they use or abuse it? 400 years after his burial in Stratford, Shakespeare asks us to look at ourselves and question who and what we are. One of the most unusual images documenting Dublin in the middle of the 20th century is a 1940 cartoon called Dublin Culture, showing 40 men, yes, all men, in the back room of the Palace Bar on Fleet Street. You might have seen this in one of the many books about the great literary figures of the time, or if you happen to have visited the palace where the original hangs in pride of place in the back room. Among those depicted in the cartoon are bar staff and several men now largely forgotten. But among the tables and pints, there's a unique generation of journalists, writers and artists who frequented the palace and who are still regarded as some of our most important cultural figures. Two of my favourites are Flan O'Brien, who's looking slightly dazed in the back of the room, and the diminutive, almost child-sized artist Harry Kernoff, 
positioned at the front table, presumably because he was too small to be seen elsewhere. In the middle, holding court, is Irish Times editor Bertie Smiley. There are writers Austin Clark, Francis McManus and Patrick Kavanagh, who seems to be about to leave, and artists Sean O'Sullivan and William Connor. A moment in time captured in cartoon, described by one critic as a remarkable essay in pictorial criticism. While Dublin culture is often cited in works about that era, of the artist there's usually little comment, except that he was Alan Reeve from New Zealand. For years it had bothered me that so little was known about Reeve. But then, a recent speculative email to the Curator of Comics and Cartoons in New Zealand's National Library led to a wealth of information from Reeve's not-yet-catalogued personal archive. Born in Wellington in 1910, Reeve went to Wellington College before briefly pursuing careers in architecture and advertising. But art, and more specifically caricatures, was his true calling. In 1933, he held his first exhibition, Caricatures of 250 Wellingtonians, with the opening enlivened by the daughter of a former Prime Minister ripping her likeness from the wall and tearing it up, with the shreds quickly picked up and bought by another punter. After three years in Australia making what he described as an up-and-down living off the proceeds of more than a thousand caricatures, he took a boat to Italy. In Rapallo, he became friends with writer Ezra Pound, toured the Riviera and sold caricatures in Marseille and the bar of Monte Carlo's Paris Hotel. The following year, Reeve went to London. He sold cartoons to various publications, worked in nightclubs sketching patrons on nights out, and in June 1939 put on an exhibition. But three months later, with Europe descending into war, he decided to slowly make his way home, beginning with an intended three-month visit to Dublin in the early months of that strange time in Ireland known as the Emergency. The tall and affable Reeve, now sporting a fine red beard, arrived with the sum total of £2.10 in his pocket but Dublin proved very amenable to Reeve. With a knack for finding interesting company, Reeve soon discovered the back room of the Palace Bar, then the haunt of Dublin's intelligentsia. It was here that he most likely met Bertie Smiley, who commissioned him to produce a weekly cartoon series for the Irish Times called Drawing the Crowd. In his studio at 52 Merrion Square, wearing a smock featuring the signatures of many of his subjects, Reeve drew politicians, writers, barristers, businessmen, theatre and religious figures. While exaggerating and lampooning his subjects, Reeve's caricatures are never nasty, but seem imbued with his innate good humour. In a way, similar, I think, to the Dice Man in the 1980s, Reeve quickly became part of the fabric of the Dublin scene, attending events, speaking to the likes of the Rotary Club, being interviewed on Radio Erin about his craft and featuring in several newspaper articles. To know Reeve is to like him. A lot, wrote Seamus Kelly in the Irish Times. Reeve has a way with him. He has made a multitude of friends and no enemies. There's a photo in the New Zealand archive of Reeve sitting in the palace's back room, appropriately reading the Irish Times, looking as comfortable as if he'd been doing it for years. While his drawings only featured men, it's clear that Reeve also enjoyed the company of women, 
Among those he befriended in Dublin were Brenda and Ingrid McDermott and Betty Aiken. And there's a beautiful photograph of one Betty Dolan that hints at an intimacy that is deeper than friendship. But in June 1940, it all came to an end. After eight months in Dublin, Reeve departed for America. Before leaving, he held an exhibition in Brown Thomas where he put over 140 caricatures up for sale. The depiction of the Palace Bar gathering, titled Dublin Culture, held centre stage and was the talk of the opening. Reeve subsequently lived in New York and Los Angeles, where he mixed with the likes of Charlie Chaplin, Olivia de Havilland and Alfred Hitchcock. Moving to London, he met and married Meath woman Liz Crockett, then working for Life magazine alongside the likes of war photographer Frank Kappa. Later, the couple moved to Toronto. Reeve finally returned to New Zealand in 1961 and spent his last days in Australia where he died a year later. But to me, it seems clear from his archive photographs and reminiscences that there was nowhere Reeve had been more welcomed or celebrated than Dublin. As for the drawing Dublin culture, none of his other works has stood the test of time as much as that cartoon of 40 men in the back room of the Palace Bar from over 80 years ago. I've been north and I've been south and I've been east and west I've been just a rolling stone Yet there's one place on this earth I've always liked the best Just a little town I call my own but Dublin can be heaven with coffee at 11 and a stroll in Stephen's Green. I tell the 1980s baby, to do your shopping you had to go through a hostile border. I tell her, you could have been born right there in no man's land, pointing to the remains of the border as we pass from Derry or London Derry or whatever you're having yourself into Donegal. I show her the remains of the checkpoint and tell her about being stopped one night as we returned from shopping. Standing at the side of the road while they searched the boot, the soldiers eyed me up, wondering whether the bulge under my coat was a bomb or a baby. It was pitch black except for the bang of yellow streaming out of the searchlights. The engine was silent. A fox ran across the road and everyone jumped. Fear was a hair's breadth. Tell me about my birth, she asks, fishing a pink marshmallow from the pack. We're on a road trip to show her where she was born. You were born in that there maternity unit in Letterkenny High, into a time when nothing was what it seemed. A dilation of cervix, pethidine, daffodils, him praying for something, me with my legs in the air climbing the walls, floating over the blue and white diamond quilt, its patron below me like shark teeth waiting to bite. And then you, the redhead, arrived, dazed and bloodied into the war. We parked the car and make our way down High Street. I was living history then, I say. The hunger strikes came with days of another lad struggling, a march on Letterkenny and the town, silent as a black swan. Another funeral, a makeshift coffin, carried through the street by sullen mourners. 
In England, Margaret Thatcher drank whiskey and told us Northern Ireland was out there or up the road in Finchley. After lunch, we head to the National Park in Climerigal. The redhead is speaking to the wind, asking it questions. Proper no man's land, she remarks, looking at the spread of bog. I tell her I walked up the street to the dementia unit every morning to work. Here, the old ladies, fey and coquettish, made lace gloves. The stitches on the crochet hook turned the bog cotton thread into a timeline. Fragments of that era were woven and notched up the heartbreak of women's lives. That there's a rosebud motif, nurse, one said to me. You don't forget that. You might forget lots of things, but you don't forget that. We arrive at a nice hotel in Ratmullen and settle ourselves into the sofa beside the fire. The redhead reads her phone and I read the paper. In the evening she opens the curtains of our room and asks me to step outside. She points her camera because there, in all its vivid beauty, the moon is full and flanked by ink-blue clouds. Catholics or Protestants? For all the religion, that war sounds godless the daughter considers as we get ready for bed. Who won anyway, do you think, she asks. Who won what? The war. No one, I say. No one wins a war. It's true. It's all still there, I think, as I lie in bed, reflecting on the day. The fear from that time, still sharp on the breath. It seeped into everybody's life like poison into a river, and it didn't leave. I tell her it wasn't all gloom as we make our way home. I biked it to Glen Carr once. I went looking for a loom to weave the bog, the yellow stacks, the blue rise of Erigal. When I went to collect it, an old man, agile still, leapt into the attic and threw down the frame, the sticks, the shuttles. What the hell do we do with the old time, he asked. Who wants it now? What do we do with the memories that are left when everything has moved on? Look, he said, shaking the wood. The shuttle still has thread. Making History for John McCartan A young historian is gathering stories of the War of Independence for a big book to commemorate a century of freedom. He visits an old man whose father fought with the IRA but took the wrong side in the Civil War. The young man switches on his recorder. I'm keen to know about the IRA shooting of Jim Hamilton in Drumstown in June 21. I've heard it said he was a paid informer. Did your father ever talk about it? The farmer stares at the microphone, looks out the window at the big pine tree, 
slowly focuses on the earnest face of the local teacher's son. His voice is quiet, clear. Oh, Hamilton wasn't shot, and he was no informer. He wasn't killed in the town either, but out there on that street. They cut the head off him with a bell hook. We got his farm after. My father told me all on his deathbed. I say a prayer for the two of them every night. Sprinkle holy water under yon big tree. Put that in your book, he said, and let them make history of it. On this morning's programme we heard A Border Journey by Peter Trant, The Sounds of Home by Elizabeth Oxley, Shakespeare's Italian Story by Pauline Kelly, Alan Reeve and Dublin Culture by Tim Carey, Gathering Rosebuds by Elizabeth Power, and Making History, a poem by Vincent Woods. The music on this morning's programme was Wild Mountain Time, sung by the Clancy Brothers, This Is It, Your Soul by the Hothouse Flowers, Venetian Boat Song by Mendelssohn, played on piano by Andrus Schiff, Dublin Saunter by Noel Purcell, and Who Knows Where the Time Goes by Sandy Denny. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon. The producer is Sarah Binchy. And to listen back to this morning's programme, go to the RTE radio player or the programme website, rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Sunday Miscellany. You can find more from this and other arts and culture programmes on rte.ie forward slash culture. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.